Thank you very much, Keith. You might be wondering, who's Keith? I'll tell you. Several years ago, well, actually, it was longer than that. The Lord has, through the Spirit, worked in our church, and many new folks have come in, and it's just a reality that as a church grows, we can't all know one another when you reach a certain point. And I remember someone once saying, I, I, used, I liked it a lot better when I knew everybody when we were nice and small. And I said, yeah, me too. But it's not about us. It's about whoever the Lord brings to us. And so there are people that, embarrassingly, my wife and I haven't met yet or don't know and have been here for a while, and that's just a reality. So I want to introduce you to our friend Keith. Keith Plummer is actually a professor here at Cairn. I have the, someone call it privilege, to stare across the hall from his office and see him. I'll call it a privilege. Keith has been, I think, is it seven years now, eight? Seven or eight years a professor here in the School of Divinity at Cairn. He and his wife, Ingrid, hail, well, I don't know if they hail from, but they lived for a long time in Chicago. Seems like a pattern, John Beagle, now Keith. And they have two children. Their one son, Brandon, plays the drums for us, and you've probably seen him and maybe his sister, Candace. So we welcome them, and thank you, Brother Keith, for They've been with us for a while now, and we're grateful for his ministry. And what a good uh, way to introduce us this morning as we turn in our Bibles to John chapter 17, and we're going to finish Jesus' prayer this morning. It's really interesting how many things fit together. The passage that Keith read in Hebrew said he's perfected those who are being sanctified. Well, we just talked about that last week. And then the, the Lord's Prayer, we saw a number of parallels, like protection, lead us not into temptation. We saw glorification, Father, hallowed be thy name, to you be the glory forever. So if you're joining with us, we have extra Bibles, just raise your hand. If you're just learning to read the Bible, we welcome you to start with us. We're reading through the Gospel of St. John. It was really interesting because this week I was talking to uh, a dear man who has become a friend of mine who is very sick and may not survive. And I've been engaging him in this discussion about what it means to be a Christian and how to know that your sins are forgiven and how you can know that you have eternal life. And he said... I'd like to consider myself a generic Christian. And I said, well, let's talk about what that means. And at the end of the day, what I pressed home was the fact that a true Christian is someone who believes that the Bible is not just the words of men, but the revealed words of God. And therefore, whatever the Bible says, it has authority and it has hopeful promises of which we can believe and trust and come hell or high water, whatever the churches say we want to make sure that we're following the Bible. And so it was really, really interesting, and I hope and pray that he will become convinced of that and trust in this gospel that we always talk about. But if you were to come up behind Jesus right now, and the disciples are bowed in prayer in John 17, and Jesus is praying for them, and someone says, hey, who's that guy? And they say, well, that's the son of God. What's he doing? Well, He's praying. Well, what's he praying about? Well, he prayed that the Father would glorify him, so he prayed for his own glorification. But then he prayed for us. He, he prayed for our protection. He asked the Father to keep us from evil and the evil one. And then, then he prayed for our, our sanctification. 
He prayed that we would be more and more like him, that through the word we would be free from sin and more like him. But be quiet, he's not done because he's got one or two last things. And that's where we'll pick up this morning. We're going to finish verses 20 through 26. So having prayed for glorification and protection and sanctification, he closes his prayer by praying for our unification and, pardon the wordplay, our reunification. Our unification and our reunification. So let's read together verses 20 through 26. If you just want to follow along in your Bible or on the screen, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the 12 that were there, or 11 now, but for these also who will believe in me through their word, that's us, and many others. Notice, here he prays for our unification. He says, Father, I pray that they may all the Baptists, the Lutherans, the Methobacterians, all who are true Christians, that they may all be one. Even, now what's that, what kind of unity? Even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us. Well, why, why would you pray that, Jesus? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory you have given me, well, that's interesting, what does that mean, the glory you have given me? Father, I've, I've now given it to them so that they may be one. What kind of one? Just as we are one. I in them and you in me. Now notice again this emphasis on unity. He's praying for this that they may be perfected in unity. And again, why? why? Why all the interest in unity, Jesus? So that the world may know that you sent me and that the world may know that you love them even as you have loved me. So he prays for our unity, but then... I'm going to say that not just our unification, but our reunification as he closes his prayer. Now, remember at the beginning, he said, Father, take me back to glory. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. This is where I want to introduce you to the idea of reunification. I'm going away, but Father, my prayer is that those who you've given me will be with me, that we'll be reunified. Well, why? So that, pardon my addition, so when they get there, they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now note, in verse 10, he called him Holy Father. This time he says, O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you yet, I've known you. And these right here, they've known that, that you sent me. And Father, I made your name known to them. But nobody's like, I'm not done though. I will make it known. There's more about you that I want them to know. I will make it known. Well, why? So that 
the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Think about that last phrase. Remember, I'll often refer to the Gatorade illustration. Is it in you? I think we would all be safe to say, I would like to have that in me, the love with which God loved Jesus. That wouldn't be a bad idea for that to be in me. So let's pray, and we'll talk this morning about this unification and reunification. Father, your word has the ability to powerfully change lives. We're here today because it has changed our lives. Some are here today because they want the word to change their lives. Some are here today and they're, they're, they're still kind of trying to decide whether they're on board or just to, some of our young people are here because they have to be, Lord. And I pray for them that their hearts will move to that place where they want to be. May the Spirit be our teacher today. May Jesus be the focus. And may the gospel be our, our joy and may it strengthen us. And truly, Father, may this prayer of Jesus be continually answered in a progressive way in our lives. May his prayers not fall on our foolish unbelief and disobedience, but may they accomplish what he prayed for. And may we enjoy and delight in every benefit and blessing that comes from this prayer for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a few moments and just kind of talk this through. The, the first thing we saw there is Jesus, the heart and soul, as he says, I pray that they will be one. So Jesus has this great desire, this, this interest in our unity. And when you think about it, it, it sort of makes sense because one of the greatest problems we have here on earth is people can't get along, right? And sociologists and anthropologists and everybody's trying to figure it out and figuring if we just change the furniture around a little bit, we'll figure out why they can't get along. Now, we know from the Bible that the reason people don't get along is because they're sinners and they have a selfish, rebellious, and I'll say we have a selfish, rebellious nature that does not play well with others. And even in our best efforts, we we can have a very shallow sense of unity, but a deep, genuine unity, the kind the Bible of, speaks of here, is nothing short of a miracle. So I want you to start with me in verse 20, just, just to note something kind of drawn out of this. When Jesus prayed that those who believe in him through their word, we sort of go one level. We go, wait, that's us. Yeah. He prayed for us. He prayed not just for them, but for us, because we're one of those ones who believe in me through their word. But what I, what I want to encourage you to think about is, don't stop there. Because now the next state is to simply ask, who then might believe in Christ through my word? Who might be moved to be drawn to Christ because somehow I was able to share the story of Christ and what he's done for me? Since we became believers, you're here today through the passed on witness of someone else. Why stop there? Why not look beyond that and say, Lord, I guess I must be capable to reach somebody else through, through, through me sharing. Oh, oh, Lord, you're not asking me to go to the train station and 
do one of them crazy things like, Pastor Tom, huh? I, I, that's just not me. No, not at all. Most people that come to the Lord come through friends and family members. So I want you to think about the fact that this ongoing advancing of the gospel is, is possible through all of us, each one reaching one. It's a significant point because Jesus gave us the word. But now we're looking for, and I want to encourage you to pray for opportunities to share that with others. You don't have to be out of control beating people with the Bible. Just ask people, would it be okay sometime if I shared with you what the Bible says about how to go to heaven? You'd be surprised how many people would be open to that. As I shared with my friend this week, his big issue was, okay, so how do I know the Bible's God's word? Well, that's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, I thank God when you receive from us the word of God that you received it not as the word of men, but as it is truly the word of God. So I can't convince you or anybody else that this book is the word of God, but the Holy Spirit can. My job is just to share the word. Your job is just to pray and love people and share the word. So Jesus says, Father, my prayer for them, in verse 21, that they may be one. All right? So let's take a few moments and think about what that looks like. So the first thing he does is he says, Father, let me explain what kind of unity I'm talking about. And then he gets pretty mysterious. What's that oneness look like? He says in verse 20, even, you know, even like this, Father, the kind of unity that you and I have. You know, Father, you're in me and I'm in you. You know, that's a little bit staggering. What? What? And we've talked about this before. Somehow, Jesus and God describe their relationship as mutually indwelling. There's this deep, real, mutual indwelling. And Jesus says, that's what I want them to be like, like that, even as you're in me, that they may be in us. Bring them in here. So, Father, you and I are in one another. Can they... Maybe it's a swimming pool. Can they jump in and be a part of that? No, we're not, we're not becoming little gods, but we are becoming connected to God in a, in a spiritually profound way so that we mutually indwell one another in a, in a certain sense of our... or mutually indwell God in a certain sense to be brought into the fold, into the fellowship. Now, I want, I want you to think about, well, what would that look like? I mean... I, did Jesus and the Father ever get on each other's nerves? Did they ever have a crossword? Did they ever, ever give each other the silent treatment? Did they ever misunderstand one another? Did they ever go to bed angry? And of course, you know I'm being silly here. But we've all seen people, haven't we, who, who get along extraordinarily well. Now, usually it's not real, it's just television, like the Waltons, you know. Good night, John Boy. We're like, we know life doesn't work like that. You know, it, in, in the Brady Bunch, they travel in a van across America singing, row, row, row your boat, and, you know, go, you know the maids leading them. And we, we, you know, that's not real. But when we see siblings or spouses getting along in, in an extraordinary way, we say things like this, like, they really get each other. We see people showing respect and deference to one another. We're all blessed when we see a couple, and it's rare, who delights in one another, right? Who doesn't make it their, their sort of common goal to put one another down. 
And it's an encouragement and an example. But when it happens, people notice. And it's interesting, that's what Jesus prayed. He said, Father, I pray that they will have this extraordinary oneness so that, the end of verse 21, the world may believe that you sent me. So they're going to need to see something. In fact, Donald Carson said this, this unity is meant to be observable. There must be, he said, some common adherence to the gospel. There must be love that is joyfully self-sacrificing. Now think about your marriage and, and other people in your relationship to your siblings or people in this church or, or parents and children. This observable, undaunted commitment to share a common mission. A, a mutual dependence on God a unity that is growing and being brought to perfection. And you're going, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, like that's, that's even possible. But it's biblical, and it's what Jesus prays for. And if it's not being manifested at all in your marriage or in any of your relationships, then you and Jesus' prayer are at odds, or I and Jesus' prayer are at an odds. So I, I think it would be better to get in line and allow the powerful prayers of Jesus to transform me. Now, Jesus interjects something here that's rather unusual. He says, here's the kind of unity like we have. Here's the reason, so the world might believe. But then he says, here's the means of how I'm going to produce that unity. You go, Jesus, you don't know these people. <laughs> you don't get it. They're not going to be able to get along. But Jesus says, here's how they're going to get along. Look at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given it to them. What does that mean? I've given your glory to me. The word glory can have a number of meanings, but here I think he's simply saying, Father, I have revealed your presence to them. I have revealed you to them. I have revealed me to them. And the more, now listen, the more they get to know me, the more that they behold me and the glory you've given me, the more that's going to have a revolutionary effect on them. Because as we behold the glory of Christ in all of his humility as he hangs on the cross and he doesn't think about himself, but he thinks about others, I can then be moved to say, wow, I, I, I need to be more like that. And Paul goes, yeah, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, behold the glory of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard being equal with God something to hold on to, but he emptied himself and became obedient to death on the cross. So, so the means by which we become more like Jesus in unity with one another is as we behold his deep humility, the glory of Christ and the cross and his selfless sacrifices. And again, he says, Father, so that we may be one. They may be one, just like us. So this is the role model. You're like, well, what's it going to look like? Watch them, right? The Bible says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And you're like, oh, I'm so far from what that's like. And, and Jesus is going, I know, that's why I prayed it. But don't let that become your scapegoat going, that's unrealistic. So having said that, he again reiterates why he wants us to have unity. 
But in the midst of that, I want you to note something quite interesting in verse 23. He says, now, Father, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. And then he says, so the world may know. Again, so the world may know. He came to his own, the Bible says, but the world didn't receive him. They didn't know him. But notice the phrase, be perfected in unity. So what we find is that this unity is, is dynamic. And now this word, to be perfected, means to bring, to a goal, bring a goal to its accomplishment. In other words, Jesus is he's looking at your marriage, he's looking at your relationship to other Christians, and he's saying, I'm praying that it will be improving. I'm praying that this unity will be progressing. Okay, so some of you are going, Phew. it's a good thing because if he gave me a grade right now, I would be in big trouble. But by his grace, and knowing this, I go, all right, I better pay attention here. What's my part? Do I just passively sit by and go, well, Jesus, I hate them, but pray for me. No. We're going to come back in our applications in a few moments, but, but notice, let's just take that to heart. Jesus takes unity seriously, and if you're not getting along in your marriage, with other people in the church, with your family, then wake up. Now, having said that, let's briefly look at his prayer for reunification, and then we'll draw out some application. So he says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they might be with me so that they may see my glory. Now, it's kind of funny because in the beginning, we were with God. Adam walked with God. He talked with God. He saw God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the presence of God was withdrawn and they were expelled from God. And from that day on, even until today, we can't see him anymore. He's not visibly present in our midst. We have to cry out to him by faith, Genesis chapter 4. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. But I want you to note something, that when you're reading the Bible, from the early days of the Old Testament scriptures, it has always been the hope of people. The ancient hope of the people of God is that one day God would come again and permanently dwell with us. That we would get the shalom back. And it's really cool because as you're reading the Bible, you'll be surprised how many times the Bible looks forward to that day. In Leviticus, God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among you and be your God. Ezekiel promised in Ezekiel 37, I will be their God and my dwelling place will be with them. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For God said, I will dwell among them and be their God. And when, when the Lord comes back, that's a really cool thing to think about. The, psalm, or the songwriter said, Trust and obey. Then we'll walk by his side in the way. When will that be? When Christ returns. In Revelation 7.15, it says, For this reason, and this is what Jesus is praying for, for this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in the temple. Benjamin prayed, Oh God, as, 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 as we look for that day when you wipe away our tears. This is the hope that we have. Revelation 21 says, When, when God comes back, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and God himself will dwell among them. 
Now, the interesting thing to think about there is a lot of us have this idea of, oh, I can't wait, go up to heaven. But the end all ultimate is not going up to heaven, it's heaven coming down to earth. When God himself returns visibly to this planet, restores creation, removes all unbelievers and casts them into the lake of fire, wipes away the tears from our eyes, and we joyfully serve him day and night forever and ever. And that's what Jesus prayed for. Father, I want them to be with me so that they can see my glory. And that's something we should be thinking about, we should be looking for. 1 John 3 says, if you have this hope on you, you purify yourself. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, I'm praying for you when the Lord Jesus comes to be marveled at by those who believe. It's going to be a spectacular event. Better than Monday night's Final Four. Better than anything we can imagine. And that's what Christ prayed for. And the reason for it is he said again, so that, Father, you loved me. And the means, again, is this ongoing manifestation of Jesus. Look at verse 25. The world doesn't know you, yet I have known you. Keep reading. Not just I have known you. I have made your name known and will make it known. I'm not done. This morning, Jesus is is revealing himself a little more to you and me. And that's, that's all of our lives. If you're a Christian, we're growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And the goal here is not so we can go, well, now I know that, and I know that, and I know that. It's so that I might experience the love of God that he has for Christ in me. So Jesus closes his prayer for unification and reunification. And so we stop and we go, oh, God, praise you so much for the love of Christ that, that you have for him and then for me. I don't know why, for me. God, I thank you that Jesus is praying for his glorification. Can I, can I glorify him? Thank you so much that you're praying for my protection. Lord, I'd be, I'd be an apostate if it wasn't for your prayer. Thank you, Lord, for praying for my sanctification. I'm not doing so well in this area. Cause me to want to be holy. Thank you for communion to remind me that I don't have to fear to come to you again. You've already washed me. Now help me to live it out in my progressive sanctification. But finally, Jesus is going, can I talk to you about your relationships? And so in closing, if Jesus is praying that our unity will be perfected, let's try to draw out some, some places that will show up. Okay? Now again, clearly to me, the family, the family has to be a place where that unity is being perfected. The family is God's petri dish to say, listen, this is how sinners who don't normally get along can be transformed by the gospel to have deep, real, rich relational unity that people notice. So I want to give you some, some thoughts as to how, do, how, how does God bring that about? Number one, unity has to be grounded in a common goal. Right? If we all have different goals, we're all aiming at something different, or a lot of people are aiming at nothing. They hit that every time. We have to remember our common goal. Our common goal is the advancement of the gospel of Christ. If you're a Christian, you are no longer on this earth for yourself. Neither am I. That's over. That's past. He died for us that so we would no longer live for ourselves but for him. 
But remember, our common goal is to advance the gospel. Philippians chapter 1 actually says this. Paul goes, whether I'm with you or not with you, I'm praying for you that you will stand fast with one spirit, striving together for the gospel. Okay? So your marriage is not designed primarily for yours and my delight, or for some of you for your despair. It, it's, it's designed to advance the gospel, to be a witness. Not that God doesn't want us to enjoy it, but that, that we start with this common goal. Our goal is to reach people with the gospel, and everything we do matters. Okay? But we also have a common goal of helping the body of Christ to grow. Okay? It's not just, oh, we want to get soul scalps. We want to do evangelism. It's just as important, equally important, that we build each other up and help one another to grow. God doesn't want a church full of shallow, immature babes in Christ. He wants us all to grow together to the, to the, to the maturity that only Christ can bring about as we engage with one another. So don't say, I don't get much out of church. What are you getting in the church? What are you doing? to help people to grow. So we have a common goal. But secondly, it takes a concerted effort. And I want to spend our last five minutes in Ephesians chapter 4. Unity that Jesus is praying for will not happen automatically without strenuous effort. Okay? If you just put your marriage into autopilot or your relationship with your parents or with your kids or with your friends in autopilot, it will implode rather rapidly. So the Bible teaches us that unity that God desires among Christians must take a concerted commitment, a real effort. You've got to spend some energy here. Okay, Look at Ephesians 4, in verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I am the prisoner of the Lord, and I ask you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent. That word has a, a word of real strong effort. I've got to put a lot of effort here. Being diligent, verse 3, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Okay? Now, I want to talk about what that looks like. Okay? First of all, the first effort that you and I need to, to, to take here is we need to start thinking about our own humility. It's likely, if you're not getting along with someone, part of it, not all of it, but part of it may be due to yours and my lack of humility. It may be not so much due to how annoying they are, but how much I fall short of being patient and tolerant with someone else. So as you and your spouse try to make it to the car without quarreling, oftentimes there's pompousness somewhere. And the very fact that you're thinking, I know, I can't believe how much pride they have. That in itself is an evidence of that. So a concerted effort involves, first of all, clothing ourselves with humility. And that even includes a willingness to forgive. Look what it says. Showing tolerance, gentleness, patience. Some of you are at odds with somebody because you will not forgive them. And while I sympathize with the pain that they may have caused you, 
That is sinful and destructive. Ephesians 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give Satan a place in your life. This morning, as a church, Jesus is praying that all of us will sincerely forgive one another. If you got a problem with somebody, for Jesus' sake, forgive them. You don't have to feel like forgiving them. By forgiving them, that doesn't mean God forgives them. You don't have to wait till they apologize to forgive them. The Bible says forgive them because God has forgiven you. And for those of you that have resentment and bitterness in your heart, Satan is having a field day with that. Renounce that with a, a, a prayer of repentance and faith. So, we need a common goal and a concerted effort. Third, and I just have two real quick and we're done. One is we need to learn to communicate in love. Okay? Look down in Ephesians 4 to verse 15. It says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects. This is very, very important. There are two extremes when we don't get along with people, blow-ups and shut-ups, and neither one of them are good. Blow-ups are always losing their temper, they're angry, they just say whatever bothers them, and they, the beaches are rattled with body parts, the damage is done, and then they wake up the next day, hi, how are you, like nothing happened. Okay, and we, and we load that, but so are shut-ups. It's much more subtle. But if you just keep it all in, that's not a whole lot more noble because you're just seething in bitterness. Now, it's better than blowing up. The Bible says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But the reality is, you and I must learn to gently, in godly ways, speak the truth to one another. This is essential. As our church grows, Satan wants to divide us. He wants us to have strife and division. And it can be in your small group. It can be just somebody who snubbed you or somebody you misunderstood. So several things that we can do to communicate. Number one, if you've got a real problem with someone, you need to speak to them. The Bible says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to them in private. If someone comes to you and says, hey, did you hear what pastor so-and-so did? Or did you know what so-and-so? Hey, have you spoken to them? Don't receive gossip. Don't receive a third-party thing. Hey, take it to them. So learning to very gently use terms like this. I'm not saying this is what you did and this is why, but this is how I feel. Can I share with you how I'm hurt? And this is very practical, but it's so important that as Christians, we learn how to communicate. Don't let it fester. Don't, don't put your head in the sand and think it's going to go away. If you have issues with one another, go in humility and prayer and love and try to talk it out. And if you can't, and they won't receive it, then get help. In our small group, we were talking about this. We have, we have a, a, a rule. And the rule is, if you have a problem with your spouse, you don't share that with the small group without getting permission from your spouse first. You don't... You don't blindside them in front of everybody. But then the issue came up, but what if my spouse says, no, you can't share that. We're not going to talk about it. It's just between us and God. Then if your spouse continues to sin against you and is unwilling to humbly engage with that, then you go to one of your spiritual leaders. 
and you ask them to be involved. And so pray. It's really fun. I mean, think about it. Think about, God, could I get along a little better with my spouse, with my kids, with other people in the church? For some of you, are like, I don't have any problem with anybody in the church. I say hi when I come and bye when I leave. You've got a greater problem. You're not engaged. And I mean that. You need to be connected, and there are, we'll help you, but we've got online all kinds of small groups. Get connected. How can we even begin to have deep, authentic relationships where we're sharing our struggle, our pain, and praying for unity? So Jesus wants us as a church to be an example. Listen, look around. You go, man, these people are different. Somebody from Kentucky visited us a few weeks ago from a real, real strict, I don't even know what kind, I guess a snake handling church. And, and, <laughs> and, and she, said, she said to someone else, and I don't even think they're a believer, she said, wow, you let people like that in here? <laughs> I'm not going there. I don't know what she, I, she mentioned a few things. You let people like that in here? And I'm going, yeah, look around. We are really different. But the remarkable thing in, in the gospel and we've got a long way to go because there's a lot of similarities, so we need to keep reaching across the, the, the borders, right? But, but the point is, Jesus takes unity seriously. So let's pray. And if we need to repent, let's repent. And let's put an effort into glorifying God by trying by faith to get along with our family and to pray for unity and increasing love that people will be attracted to the gospel. Father, your word is alive, it's powerful, it's life-changing. And when you poke us about our own sin and you show us areas of our own unwillingness to be humble and gentle and honest and receive correction, Father, forgive us. Thank you so much, Jesus, for the beautiful unity that you have with your Father. I pray that for me and my wife, my family, and for this church that Jesus will be glorified for. It's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Don't forget to go get your kids, please.